Lord, uh, we come now to look at uh, a section of your word today, which is just really rich with truth about who you are as our Savior and our Lord. And so as we get into this passage of Scripture now this morning on this Communion Sunday and as we just reflect on your death on the cross, what it means for each one of us, I would pray, Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you personally today, that they would hear clearly what you've done for them. And then, Lord, for those of us who know you and have walked with you for many, many years, I pray that this study today would be encouraging to each one of us in some way. Give us what we need today, Lord. You know where we are. You know what we carried into this room with us today. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, please do your work. Glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, O God. May your son be glorified this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. How many of you are old enough here today to remember the days before cable television or before satellite television? Some of you, not all of you. There's some of you here today that uh, all you've known is cable television or satellite television. But if, if you're old enough like I am to remember the days before cable vision came into play, then you probably remember that Saturday sports show which ran for 37 years and spanned the worldwide globe. It was called The Wide World of Sports. And if you remember tuning into that show, then you probably remember Jim McKay's voice because he was the sportscaster that was a part of that. And you remember the image of that skier that would come down the slope and, and, and it was just horrible. I mean, you know, he came off of that thing and, and he just crashed and burned head over heels and, and you'd hear Jim McKay's voice talking about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. You remember it. Life is a lot like that. It's filled with victory, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. It's a lot like sports. One moment you're soaring, and then the next moment you're crashing and you're burning, and you don't know how you got there. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know whether you're experiencing the thrill of victory or whether you're going through the enduring the agony of defeat this morning. But as we look at this passage of Scripture, what I want you to understand as we begin to get into this, and I hope you've got your Bible open now, and you're looking at the Scripture which Gene read for us. We need to put this in context, and you need to remember that the believers that this author was writing to were enduring defeat. Their lives were filled with pain and problems. They were going through tremendous persecution because these early believers that this author is writing to were more than likely Jewish Christians. They were Jews who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they were living during the time of Nero, somewhere around 63 or 64 
A.D., before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., we know that because of some of the verses in this book of Scripture. It had to be before the destruction of the temple, I think. And if you know anything about the time of Nero, then you know that it was a time of tremendous persecution. And so these Jewish Christians were tempted to retreat back to the safe confines of Judaism because the Jewish religion at that time was protected by the state of Rome. So why not just go back? Why not retreat back and go back to what I knew before? Why, and why put up with this persecution or, or go through all of the agony that they were having to go through during their lifetime? And so this author writes to these believers to encourage them. And there's encouragement here in this passage of Scripture. And I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what your situation is, but one thing I know is that Jesus Christ is adequate to handle whatever you have in your life right now. In fact, in chapter 13 of this book of Scripture, the Bible tells us that Jesus will never, never leave you, and Jesus will never, never forsake you, no matter what your situation is. That's verse 5 of chapter 13. And in the verse of Scripture just after that, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So even though your life may go up and down and your circumstances may change and you may go from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat, Jesus Christ is there for you this morning. Now, you know, as Christians, I think we really need to hear that. I'm looking out here at, at, at you, you believers, and I'm not sure you believe me. We hear this stuff every Sunday morning. Hear it again. Jesus Christ is real. He's not just a name in the hymn book. He's not just a name on the written pages of Scripture. Jesus Christ is a resurrected living Lord and Savior this morning. And he's there for you, whatever your circumstance. And so this author is writing to encourage these believers in the midst of the difficulty that they're going through. Because you see, when we go through stuff in life, we're tempted to turn and go in a different direction and turn back to something else or someone else to save us or comfort us or whatever it is we need, anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's writing to show them that Jesus is superior. Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. You know, there are a lot of people in this world today that worship angels. There are some people that worship Mary. There are some people that are into worshiping all kinds of different things. But Jesus Christ is better than anything else or anyone else that you, that, that you would turn to. And so he writes this and writes about this in this, this, this book of, of Scripture. Now, what I want you to see as we get into these verses today is that the author, the first thing he's going to do is teach us something. He's going to instruct us. And he's going to tell us something about Jesus Christ, who we're worshiping and celebrating this morning. 
And then after he gives us some instruction, he's going to go on and he's going to exhort us. He's got an exhortation or an encouragement for us based on what he teaches us. And then he's going to give us an invitation, and then he's going to end with a promise here in this passage of Scripture. Now, notice what he teaches. If you've got your outline in front of you or if you've got your notes, let me just tell you what he's going to teach us, and then we'll just talk about it. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus Christ is sovereign. And then we're going to see that Jesus is sympathetic, that Jesus suffered, and that Jesus is sinless. Now, let's talk about that. Let's unpack it here for just a moment. Notice what he tells us here in verses 14 and 15. I'll read it again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, notice verse 14 again in that first phrase. We have a great high priest. He doesn't say we have a priest. He doesn't say we have a high priest. He says we have a great high priest. You might want to underline that phrase. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, then you know that the high priest, and if you look at Leviticus chapter 16, you know that the high priest on the day of atonement did what? He passed through the door of the tent or the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies. And he did that once a year to offer atonement for the people's sins. And so our teacher here, the author of the book of Hebrews, is is teaching us something. He's taking that Old Testament event, and he's telling us that was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the high priest in the Old Testament once a year would pass through the door and go into the Holy of Holies to offer uh, atonement for the people's sins, Jesus Christ, our Savior, hasn't just passed through the, 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 the door or the curtain of an earthly tent. He's passed through into heaven itself, into the very presence of God as he's offered atonement for for your sin and for mine. And so Jesus Christ is greater than any high priest, greater than Aaron, any priest in the Old Testament, or any priest that's ever lived. Jesus Christ is sovereign. The only priest ever to go into the, the very presence of God and He's seated at the right hand hand of God today. Look at chapter 8, verse 1 in the book of Hebrews. Just turn over a few pages. And notice what the Bible tells us here. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. In case you don't get it in chapter 4, he's going to repeat it in chapter 8. Now, the point's this, in case you haven't gotten it this morning. We have such a high priest one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
He's passed through into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father this morning. Jesus Christ is sovereign. And Jesus Christ is sympathetic. That's the second thing he teaches us. Look at verse 15 again. Back to chapter 4, verse 15. Notice that he's not only passed through into the heavens, and he's in the presence of God, and he teaches us that in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews as well. But he says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, this means something to me. You know, it's one thing to say that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus is in heaven this morning. But it's another thing to say that Jesus Christ is sympathetic, that he can actually feel what I feel, that he actually knows what I'm going through today. But that's, that's who Jesus Christ is. He's fully sympathetic with your situation whatever it is this morning. This word for, this Greek word for sympathy, which is given here in this verse of scripture is the English word from which we get our English, our our word for sympathy. And it literally means to suffer with somebody. Now, forgive me, Mike, I'm going to embarrass you here for a minute, but one of the things that we learned in our transition team was that you don't have the spiritual gift of mercy or sympathy, okay? So, and, and, and Michael owned that. He'll admit that, okay? He's got a lot of spiritual gifts and abilities, but one of his things is he doesn't have the gift of compassion, okay? So if, you, if, if you're looking for sympathy, don't go to Mike Collins, okay? You're out of luck, Some people in the body of Christ have been given a special gift of being able to suffer with people. They're compassionate. And if I remember correctly, and I'm not going to name any other names, uh, we had some people on our circle on that transition team who actually have the spiritual gift of sympathy or compassion. Now, Tom Mitchell isn't one of those. I'll just tell you that, okay? He wasn't one of those in the circle who had that gift. So you're out of luck if you go to Tom. You're out of luck if you go to some people because they just don't have that gift. But Jesus Christ is fully sympathetic. He's tuned in. He can identify with your situation. You know why? Because he suffered. He suffered. He came in human flesh and he got thirsty and he got tired and he was nailed to a cross. And he's experienced everything that you've experienced in spades. And he can identify with where you're at this morning. And so you can always go to him. And he is one who will suffer with you. He will sympathize sympathize with you. This verb actually means to feel with somebody in their situation or their condition. Jesus can feel with us. That's what this verse is saying. And he feels with us, look at verse 15 again. What does he feel with us in? He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, in our frailties, in our maladies, in our diseases, in our feebleness, in our weakness, Jesus identifies. Now, it's interesting. The Jews 
had a God who was distant. The Jewish people believed that God was holy. They had that belief. And if you were living in the first century AD, then the Stoics, and you'd run into some of them, believed that God was apathetic. He wasn't just different, but he was distant. And then the Epicureans believed that God was uninvolved. But the Bible teaches us that God was willing to roll up his shirt sleeves and to climb down into the mud and the dirt of planet Earth. He came, we call it the incarnation, God in the flesh. That's Jesus Christ. And that's why he can sympathize because he suffered. He can identify with us because he's gone through what we go through. It's interesting, several years ago, I ran across a, an interesting article in the, in the Daily Bread. It was on August 27, 2012. I was getting ready for surgery. And I was apprehensive about what I was getting ready to go through. And, and this pastor, who was also a counselor, evidently published this article. It's called The New Normal. And this is what this article in the Daily Bread said on that occasion. If you're trained in trauma and grief counseling, he commented that the greatest challenge for for people who are hurting is often not the immediate heartache of loss. You know, we're really good at rallying around people when they get out of the hospital or the day after the funeral. But then we kind of forget about them. They go off our radar screen as the days unfold and turn into weeks and then the weeks turn into months. And so he says, it's not the immediate heartbreak of the loss. Instead, he said, for people who suffer, the biggest problem is adjusting to a different kind of life that follows. What once was normal may never be normal again. And I'm looking at some of you this morning who've lost a loved one, and you know what I'm talking about. And so the challenge of those who are offering help is to assist the sufferers as they establish what this counselor calls a new normal because life will never be the same again. And you know that if you've been through divorce or you've lost a loved one or you've been through some illness or whatever form of suffering it may be for you, life becomes normal, but it's never quite the same. It's, it's a new normal. And people who are sympathetic enter into that. They feel with you as you go through that. And that's Jesus Christ. He can fully identify with wherever you're at today because he suffered and died for you. I ran across an incredible story about three or four years ago. Maybe you remember it. It was a story of a Denver mailman who actually was delivering mail one day and he comes up to the front porch of this home and he's going up the steps and he steps over somebody who's lying there on the front porch. He thought it was a, it was, this was on November 2nd. It was just after Halloween. He thought it, he mistook it for a, some type of a Halloween mannequin. And so he's going, he's delivering mail. He steps over this body. He delivers the mail. He leaves and then he finds out later that day that the person he died, that, that was there lying on that front porch 
was a real-life person, 46 years of age, actually died. And the family was just furious. They didn't understand it because they got there about an hour later and his body was still warm. And they thought, if the mailman had just cared enough to just stop and notice and pay attention. But he stepped over the body and delivered the mail. How many times in our own lives are we like that mailman? You know, somebody's bleeding to death. Somebody's hurting. Somebody's suffering. But we just step over. We step around. Jesus Christ doesn't do that. Jesus Christ is fully sympathetic with our situation because he suffered. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then he was sinless. And that's what qualifies him this morning to be our Lord and our Savior. Look at the end of verse 15. Yet without sin. Yet without sin. Can we say that together? Yet without sin. You know, it's one thing to resist temptation. It's one thing thing to endure temptation, to be tried and to go through something and to resist it and resist it to a certain point and then finally you just give in or you give up. But Jesus Christ resisted to the point of death on the cross and he became our resurrected Lord and that's what fully qualifies him this morning to be our high priest, the one that we can go to because he was without sin, the only one who ever lived who was without sin. And so that's what he teaches us about Jesus this morning. Now notice his word of encouragement. Our author now is gonna go on and he encourages us. He's gonna exhort us now in light of what he's just taught us about Jesus. And notice what he says here in this passage of scripture. Look at uh, verse 1. I want to get the verse right, the end of verse 14 again. And notice what he says. Let us hold fast to our confession. In light of what he's taught us now, what he's telling these believers that he was writing to on this occasion, what he's teaching us today is, let us hold fast to our confession. In light of the fact that Jesus is sovereign that he's fully sympathetic, that he can identify with where you're at today, even though somebody else may not be able to. In light of the fact that he suffered with you and for you, in light of the fact that he's perfect, he's sinless, don't give in and don't give up. You see, that was the problem of these believers that this author was writing to. They were on the edge of giving in and giving up. Have you ever been there in your life? If you won't say it, then I will. I've been there. We've all been there, haven't we? There, there are those times in our lives that we go through something that we're, we're just at, at a quitting point. We're ready to just give in and give up because life is just, it's just too much. But what what the author is saying here this morning to those Jewish believers who were tempted to, to go back to Judaism and give in and give up, he's saying, don't do it. Hold fast. Hold on. Don't give in and don't give up. 
There's no reason to give in and give up. If you truly believe what this writer is preaching this morning, and this is the word of God. Jesus Christ is completely adequate to get us through, even though we may not feel it at the time, to get us through to wherever God's taking us. I read this incredible story years ago, and you can Google this if you don't believe me. Just go home now and Google this. It was actually printed in the New York Times on September 4th, 1987. And it's the story of an of a computer, pardon me, a commuter, not computer, a commuter. I'm looking for the story here. I can't multitask. I can't look for things and talk. Want to make sure I get this right. Never hide anything under your notes, okay? This is a true story about Henry Dempsey, a commuter airline pilot, pilot who was on a flight from Portland, Maine to Boston. And they're on this flight, and all of a sudden, he hears a noise in the back of the plane. And he thinks, that's strange, something rattling around. And so he turns the controls over to his uh, co-pilot. Thank you. I've almost said autopilot. Somebody's listening. <laughs> turns the controls over to his, auto, uh, his control pilot. Thank you. You tried to help me over to his, his co-pilot, and he goes back to the back of the plane, and he starts looking around, and while he's looking around, all of a sudden, he finds out what the problem was. It was the, the back door of the plane. It was, it was partially open, and they hit an air pocket, and the thing flies open, and he flies out of the plane. This is a true story. Go home, Google it. September 4th, 1987. Flies out of the plane, and he's going, as he's going out of the plane... Somehow, he manages to catch on to the rail of the, of the door. And so he's holding on. They're going 200 miles an hour, over 4,000 feet in the air. The true story. Google it. <laughs> September 4th, 1987. He's holding. You, you don't believe me. I can tell. He's holding on to this railing as he's going out of this plane. And he manages somehow to hold on. And the, the co-pilot realizes that the pilot's falling out of the plane. And so he, he radios ahead and gets special permission to, to land the plane before they get to their destination. They, he lands this plane. And somehow this guy manages to hold on to this, this railing. He's actually, I think, head first, upside down, holds on 12 inches above the runway. And he lives to tell about it, holds on all the way to the land. Now, at the end of this version of the story, and this must be a preacher. I don't know if he's exaggerating or not, but he says uh, that when they, they landed, it took several minutes to pry Dempsey's fingers from the ladder. <laughs> it would me too if I was on the. But that's an example of holding on, of holding fast. And that's what our author is exhorting us to do here. But in, in, in the Christian life, you don't hold on by human strength, by sheer willpower like that guy did when he was falling out of the plane. You can't muster up enough strength to hold on. The only way you hold on in the Christian life is by looking to Jesus, by resting in Jesus, by going to Jesus. 
And that's why he gives us this invitation in this passage. Notice what he says in this verse of scripture. Look at verse 16. He says, and so draw near, draw near to the throne of grace. And notice it's not called a throne of glory. It's not called a throne of majesty. It's called a throne of grace, a throne of mercy, so that you can find help in time of need. And these are true present tense verbs in the Greek text. And so we could literally translate, hold on and keep holding on. Draw near and keep drawing near to the throne of grace. You, know, you see, you know what our problem is as believers? So many times we draw near to the throne of grace for salvation. And that's what this communion table is about this morning. But then we stop drawing near. But guess what? You don't need just grace to save you. You need grace to sanctify you. We need grace to live the Christian life. We need everything that Jesus can give us to be the person that he wants us to be. And so our author says, hold fast and keep holding fast. Draw near and keep drawing near. Don't forget to draw near. You need to draw near on a daily basis because you need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And so he says, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. You can draw near with confidence in faith, not in fear, because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. It's more than enough for you. It's more than enough for me. It's more than enough for all of us this morning. And then he leaves us with a word of promise at the very end. Look at the end of this passage. Notice what he says. That we may receive mercy and find grace in, in, to help in time of need. The promise is that you will receive the mercy and the grace that you need for help in the time of need. Now, this is an interesting Greek word. For those of you who have the notes, we're on page five now, okay? All the way to the end. If you're not audio and you're visual, then look at this. Notice the meaning of this Greek word here at the end of this passage. This Greek word means literally to find help at a well-timed point or in the nick of time. In the nick of time, Robertson, the great New Testament commentator says, at the opportune time. Have you ever gone to God looking for mercy and grace and you, you feel like he didn't give it to you when you wanted it? You know what? Maybe he didn't give it to you when you wanted it because that's not when you needed it. You thought you needed it then, but you just wanted it. Maybe, maybe you had to experience a little bit more difficulty or you had to take one more tumble off that ski lift or whatever it is. But the promise here is that the, t- the time of need, in the nick of time, you will find help at your point of need if you're willing to draw near. And so the invitation this morning is to come 
to draw near. Let's sing our closing hymn and worship our Lord together. Mike, would you just come and lead us?